Welcome to the Mind Your Leadership Podcast. I'm Karen Soup. In this podcast, I will have conversations with thought leaders, CEOs, and managers from various organizations about leading mindfully. We will learn from experienced leaders how they implement mindful leadership in the day-to-day organizational culture, and we will gain tools and skills. So stay with us. Hello, today I will speak with Liz Kislik. Liz is a management consultant and executive coach and a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review and Forbes. Her TEDx, why there's so much conflict at work and what you can do to fix it, has received more than 400,000 views. She specializes in developing high-performing leaders and workforces and for 30 years has helped family-run businesses, national nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. She received her BA from Yale University and earned an MBA in management from NYU. In this episode, Liz will offer surprising insights and successful techniques for mastering collaboration, conflict management, talent development, and employee engagement. So stay with us. You know, I like to start from the personal aspect because it's Fine. most most engaging. So, I wanted to ask you what was the highest or lowest point of your career, life, and what have you learned from it? It's funny, Karen, how what you think is happening at the time is not what's happening at the time. You know, it's part of it. One of the things that I say to my clients all the time, they say, but this thing happened or that other person made this problem, et cetera, et cetera. And I say to them, that's accurate, but it's incomplete. There are always other things operating. And sometimes we understand them and sometimes we don't understand them. And I would say that the lowest points in my career have always come from feeling out of control. Like I didn't know what was happening. I knew I didn't understand enough. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you know you have more to learn. You're not sure. You feel a little in over your head. And you can go forward. You can grow into it. I do believe fake it till you make it is fine so long as it's not, you know, an everyday occurrence, not about everything. But sometimes you're just thrust into situations you don't expect, or they're really like two sizes too big instead of one size too big. Mm -hmm. One of the longest lasting, hardest, but also kind of boring, so I don't think I'm really going to tell you about it, is when I was very young, I was 23, and I was promoted to be vice president of this call center, and I was responsible for 300 employees. And It just goes to show you that there was no bench (laughs) that, you know, they took this little girl and I was very smart little girl, but still you wouldn't want to do that today. But that was just a kind of grinding experience learning to make my way. And I never enjoyed it because it was never good enough. There was always so much wrong that. I just couldn't feel good about it. So that was a low. I mean, there were, 
I came home crying many days, but that's boring. <laughs> you know, that's the grinding struggle. I don't think it's boring. You know, when you speak with me, tell your story, it resonates with me with the flow experience. You know, when I'm working with leaders and management, I, I believe that you also, we want to help them be in the flow state of mind, right? Invest minimum effort and gain maximum results. And in order to do that, you need to hold the tension between the opportunity and the ability yeah. in order to be in this flow. And it sounds from your experience that the gap was too big. I don't know if you felt anxiety, but you didn't feel comfortable and competent to do what you needed to do. So you couldn't be in this flow. And I think it's a, a great example for us as leaders, as individuals, to know to hold this tension and to say, okay, it's not a, a good fit for me. Okay, it's very complimenting to me that they gave me this job, but will I be happy with it? Will I be successful? Do I want this job for the right reasons? What do you think about it? That's a very good analysis. I, in many ways, am a structuralist. And what I would say is, you are correct, I was almost never in flow, partially because it was the kind of role where every other minute was an interruption. You know, there was, there was yeah. never any deep, calm time. That was part of it. The other thing was there were multiple, many constituencies all of whom had needs, and they couldn't be satisfied. Mm -hmm. The trade-offs were constant, ever-present. That was very painful. But as a structuralist, what I would say is the people who were in charge at that time threw me into that job as their best hope, mm. which is a judgment about them. The guy who had been in that job before me was really, he had the age, seniority. He came from the outside. He had other experience that should have been relevant. He was just the wrong human being. And it went badly almost right away. I don't think he was there more than 90 days. So they took their best shot and put me in, but they put me in and no one thought, oh, we should be actively supporting this child in this big job. Here's how we're going to check on her. Here's the training we're going to give her. Here's It was completely unresourced. And so I had to draw from myself. And thank goodness, I had friends. I had a kind of mentor in my grandfather, who was a, a small business owner. But the grinding was not great. And I learned so much. I mean, it really was, in hindsight, you couldn't have paid for the training. In a sense, I learned to deal with people trying to manipulate me. I learned hard things about rules of operation, all kinds of stuff. Fantastic. I could not be doing what I'm doing now without that experience but it could have been a better experience. And as the company grew, it was growing. And as there was a guy who reported to me who was an instinctive operations person. I mean, you could see him. Mm -hmm. And he didn't take any of this stuff emotionally at all. And so over time, 
we were able to work out with the senior leadership, I became responsible for all of client services and he took on operations. And then the place hummed much better. We were in more natural settings for our talents. So it's not that it was a total loss, but man, it was painful. Yeah. So you, instead of guiding you and helping you, they threw you through the water and you needed to figure out all along. So you learned at the end, but we can shorten the curve of the learning, right? Yes. Yes. I'm interested also to open another issue because you refer to control. You talked about the lowest point in your career once you didn't feel in control. And I think it's an interesting issue to elaborate and look at it because do we have control? What does it mean control? Because, you know, in this active reality that we all live in now in this transformative period, we don't really have control, but how can we gain the feeling of control? What do you think about this issue? So for me, the idea that I could mess someone up outside of me and be responsible for damage or failures that I could not cover, that I couldn't compensate for, et cetera, that kind of thing, that was very painful to me. Mm-hmm. Once I had my own practice and could make all my own decisions, if there was a problem, I took care of it and I could. To this day, I don't know, for example, if in the story we didn't record, it was about a woman I had to fire. I don't know if she got a proper severance package. Hmm. But anybody I have had to fire, I give them money so they have time to find a job. You know, there are things you can do to make the path smoother for others, even when you're not meant to be together. Managing the call center, the structures were not good enough for taking care of all these people. That's a huge responsibility. And I felt that, you know, from a heart perspective and from a moral perspective. So in many ways, your question makes me think that the control is really a kind of control over myself. Mm-hmm. And what I feel is moral and being able to do that. Amazing. Because it actually resonates with my definition of mindfulness. Because when we are mindful to ourselves, we connect it to our emotions, to our feelings, to our sensations, right? And we have a free choice how to act upon them instead of being acted about upon our emotions and the situation. And this is what makes you feel in control, that we manage ourselves. It doesn't mean that we know how it will impact or resonate outside, but when I'm complete with my decision and I'm aligned with my values, then I feel in control, right? Because you said, okay, because now when I let go and I do let go of people, because this is part of doing business, I do my best to help them. But at the end of the day, I I don't control what will the next job they land, but I, I feel comfortable with what I did. So for you, being in control is really having a free choice to choose our behavior and act upon it instead of acting from a disconnected place. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's interesting. We started talking about the flow because of the things you brought up. And, you know, I know that you work with managers and executives. And at the end of the day, as we said, you want to have them be in this state of mind, right? Being in the right place, investing minimum effort, gaining maximum results and being creative and innovative. 
So what do you see the most challenges, things for leaders that you encounter? You're laughing because they're probably a lot, but if you can pinpoint one or two struggles that you usually help them to overcome in order to help them navigate to the flow space. The real reason I'm laughing is because I don't actually care so much about minimum effort. Okay, okay. I care about proportional effort. Mm-hmm. or productive effort, change, which is what I'm dealing with with executives, if they knew what to do the way it was, they wouldn't need me. And it's another illustration, actually, about self-control versus other control. Because one of the things I love about my job is I actually know I am not in control of what anybody else does. Mm -hmm. I can prompt, I can encourage, I can advise, I can hold the space, all of that. But they choose. They choose their behavior and they choose how they want their business to be if I'm dealing with an owner or a CEO, et cetera. And so I can be really comfortable that if I'm doing what I believe is right, then they get to do what they believe is right. And if I don't feel good about that, I don't have to work with them anymore. So. That feels wonderful. I can't say it's always minimum effort. Sometimes it's really hard. Yes, when I say minimum effort, usually for me, it's been in the accurate place because you do invest energy. It doesn't mean you don't, but you know, it always reminds me the dogs that runs after the tails and yeah. put in energy, wasted energy with no goal, you know. So when we are really now the right path, it's putting energy, but not too much like, putting the piece in the puzzle that it's not the right place, but you push it anyway. This is what I mean by too much energy. Beautiful. So the things that I see over and over, one is that people forget to think big enough. Mm. You know, it's like if you're driving on the highway and you are looking at the rear bumper of the car in front of you, you don't know how to maneuver as well as if you are looking a little into the distance and you see where you have space and you see where you have opportunity. And so many people are just focused on what they see as the problem or set of problems they have to deal with today. Mm -hmm. And that means their thinking is not expansive. It's narrow. And then everything looks binary. And that makes it very tough because often the yes, no They're not good choices, but bigger picture, better choices. So that's one. And that is about trying to give people a sense that curiosity is exciting and that they have more access, more choices than they recognize. That then often leads them to see they don't have to do it all alone because then you're using the brain power of the people around you and you let them participate and you encourage them to participate and you come up with better decisions because it's better to do it together. If you are working together, if you're working with other people, get their best instead of having everybody tight and just focused on how not to screw up. It's amazing because it's resonant with the control aspect, right? Because usually as leaders, as managers, we learn that we need to have all the answers. So I can't come to a meeting and not know the answer because I'm the boss. So what should I say? But actually, this is the new skills that we need to nourish nowadays, right? The ability to be present with others 
show up, to be vulnerable, to show up fully, authentically and say, look, this is what we need to figure out. I don't know what the answer is. I feel that this is the right pace or this is not the right pace. I would be happy to hear your thoughts. Let's figure it out together and create this space for the right solution to emerge. So it's actually unlearning, right? What we have learned that we need to know. I think of it as compartmentalizing because, you know, there are technical answers you need to have. There are historical things you need to know. There's stuff you need to know. But there's also stuff where there is no rigid knowing. Mm -hmm. There's only looking and choosing. But if people don't learn expansiveness, and you don't really learn that in school very well, that's much more about the rigid knowing, right? And as a child, most of us were not encouraged in expansive knowing. We were encouraged to look smart, which just as you say, is having the answers. Yeah, forget the answers. What's the path? If the trajectory is good, you can go back and forth within that a little bit and find your way. Okay, so that's a very big one. The other very big set of stuff, we're just not natural, instinctive relationship communicators. And so, People don't talk to each other about what is true and certainly, again, come from a place of holding and tightness more than, well, let me hear what the other person has to say, and I'm sure we'll figure it out together, or a place of, please tell me what's on your mind because I actually want to know. And some of that is the pressure of business requirements But there's a kind of impatience that's sort of baked into business life. Everything has to be fast, fast. Startups, it's all fast. It's all scale. Sometimes what they're scaling is not useful. Mm -hmm. More thoughtfulness, sometimes more deliberateness is helpful. I'm not talking about slowing things down or perseverating, but giving everything the time it needs to come into itself. When you're so scarce on time, executives become very high demand. They're looking for fast responses from everybody else. These are the kinds of things that close minds and cause conflict. And people were afraid of looking stupid. We're afraid of looking indecisive. We all know executives who change their minds based on the last person who spoke to them. You know, they're too easily persuaded. They don't have a good center. And they don't explain. They don't explain why they changed their minds. The time that is necessary for explaining what you want, I don't mean for your soul. I mean for the business, for the business. Explaining what you want, what's important getting people galvanized around those ideas so they can put their best thinking into it. No, there's too much command. Then people can only do the thing you told them and not necessarily bring their best to it. And then they feel negative about it. And that's how arguments happen. You know, there are so many reasons arguments happen. And then you have these like unresolved, sometimes multi-generational fights inside the organization that everybody knows this is there 
And they either walk around it or they participate in it all the time, but they don't necessarily resolve. I love being part of resolving those things. Can you give us an example of working with the co-founders, I don't know, managers that you help them to resolve and what's happened there and what did they do differently in order to help make it happen? The one that comes to mind is actually quite harsh. So the CEO of the company had what was actually a broad and expansive vision of what was going to happen. And he had really great confidence in the product development team. He believed they were gifted in coming up with what the best products would be. And his second in command came from a more technical background and became responsible for revenue generation. Mm -hmm. And that guy had a completely different idea about the structure of the business that would make the business successful. And he was less interested in the CEO's big picture. He was much more interested in the revenue numbers. Mm -hmm. And because he had this belief about how it would work, he actually created a kind of shadow organization that did not subscribe to the CEO's values, did not understand them, in some cases didn't even know about them. And the CEO and the development people are a little bit in a cloud planning these great things, and the rest of the organization is going in a different direction. Unbelievable. And you can imagine lots of problems between the groups. And they all thought that it was just that they didn't like each other and they had, you know, bad practices mm-hmm. in each group. But it, what it really was, was that they were operating out of different philosophies altogether. It took a lot of interviewing. I often interview a lot of the crucial players a lot of interviewing to even understand how different the belief sets were. And then, do you mean this? Do you mean that? You know, like sometimes I couldn't even believe what I was hearing. And then putting that together in a big picture and then saying, this is what I found. What do you want? Mm -hmm. And it became clear that the second in command really did not want what the CEO wanted. And he ended up realizing, I mean, it was under pressure, but he actually ended up realizing this was not useful mm-hmm. and in effect that he was never going to win. And, and so he went and took a job someplace else. And, and then there was a sigh of relief from the organization and the people who had reported directly to the second in command, some of them stayed Mm -hmm. and changed their philosophy and were happy. And that was good. And some of them just couldn't stay and either left under their own steam or their performance was bad because they, they didn't believe in the actual direction. So you say that each and every one like kind of worked in silos and once you came there, you had them to connect to the broader picture and to have clarity of where they're heading. And then they could see if they're fitting in this, first of all, to choose 
what the right way, right? And connect back to their vision, mission, whatever. And right. then to choose if they're feeling alignment between the values and their bigger picture or not and let go. So I think you're talking about really the, the process of creating clarity and connecting to the bigger picture. And it's amazing how in the day-to-day we can lose grab of it, right? Each and every one is thinking about his project, his narrow site and is not connected to the broader picture. And then you can lose it as a company. And you know, I know that you work a lot about communication and conflict management. What tools can you give our listeners that if they feel that they need to confront right now a colleague or the boss or whatever, how can they start unpacking it and find it the courage to confront? So what tools can they use in order to do it and to show up? Sometimes the analysis of the situation is completely separate from the idea of the communication and what are you going to stand up for? Mm-hmm. Sometimes in the moment, you see something happening in front of you that you actually believe is wrong and you feel you need to speak because you are prompted by your values. Mm -hmm. That's a very different kind of situation. Say you observe truly terrible behavior, Mm -hmm. racist or sexist or, you know, ableist, ageist, whatever it is, some kind of bad behavior that is hurting people here and now, and you feel you must speak. Then you're not thinking of the consequences as much in the moment. And you're saying the thing you need to say, and you hope it ends up okay. In most cases, though, what you are talking about is a business case for what would serve the organization better. Mm -hmm. And so it helps to really do analysis first and get your data before you even think about who am I going to present this to and how am I going to say this in a compelling way? Because you need to be able to show both the upside of change and the downside of what's happening today. And you need to be able to do that in varying ways, sometimes all at once. Sometimes you need quantitative data because the decision maker cares about the numbers. Then you better know your numbers. Sometimes, though, having the numbers is not as evocative as being able to give, say, one customer example of a customer who suffered, a big customer, and so it's really hurting us. Mm -hmm. The story can be very important. And all the factors that are connected, but you don't necessarily see in the meeting room when you're making the plan. Say we keep annoying our customers and therefore our employees are suffering because they're dealing with the annoyed customers. And so the turnover is too high. Well, that's money going out the window that you might not even count toward this problem if you weren't looking downstream. So analysis is really important. I'm not talking about six months. I'm talking about figuring out what's really going on. Mm -hmm. Making sure if you can, that you are not the only one who sees this. Check your judgment with other people. And definitely before you make the case, it's so helpful to have colleagues who have experience dealing with whoever the most senior people are and know how they like to hear bad news. Uh Because the ability to present bad news, that's crucial. You know, I want to challenge you because when I hear you, I hear a lot of um, 
analyzes the rational aspect in order to promote the change. But I really believe the change is even more based on our emotional aspect and being able to process it and to, to work with the emotions because maybe I can understand it in my mind that this is the right path, but I feel resistance in my body. So I really think that being mindful and showing up fully, it's not only having the rational language and the talk, but also showing up fully with our emotions and speaking our frustration, our excitement or whatever, or seeing the other person and telling them, look, I see that you're really passionate about this uh, process. However, I want to show you what the amplification are. So I think it's the combination of both because this would create the movement. Otherwise, it can create a stagnation. What do you think about it? I absolutely agree in both. What I've seen over and over, though, is that if you haven't done the analysis, unless you already have an extraordinarily good relationship, a trusting relationship with the person or the group that's going to make the decision, they can poo-poo you Mm -hmm. and send you out because that's your personal reaction. Mm -hmm. I think people need to be armed with the business premise, the facts, et cetera. Maybe this is truer in larger organizations, but I think both are necessary. And that's when you then get to, okay, now I'm armed. How do I make the case? Mm -hmm. It is rarely good to show up at anybody's door and tell them that they're wrong. Very few people want to hear that. There are some people who can take it. To your point, they have very good self-knowledge. They have a level of equanimity already. Mm-hmm. Most people, you tell them they're wrong, their defensiveness goes up. It's just hard to deal with them. You need the relationship and the sense of safety and trust first. Your point, it's an energetic point. If someone's excited about something, They hold it tight. You know, we're so happy to have that kind of joy in work. Terrible if somebody puts the pin in your balloon. Mm -hmm. So recognizing who you are talking to, because we need to talk to different people in different ways. It is not just about being true to yourself. It's about recognizing who the other person is and going to where they are. If you can't be with the other person the way they are, they will not hear you as well. That's right. So as you said, there are more emotional people and more rational people. So I think you need to figure out where you're going to speak with and to know how to navigate between the two. So if it's a rational person and you will come with all your emotions and his emotions, he, he won't know how to process it, right? But if you come to an emotional person with the data, you, you will be disconnected from you. So I think this is... The ability to be mindful, to really listen to also ourselves, how we feel regarding the situation and to the other colleague or individual that we are dealing with, and then to navigate this conversation in a complete way that it really will resonate with them and will engage them. Otherwise, we will lose them and it will be a disconnection and it can create even a bigger conflict, right? Exactly right. You gave me such a strong memory of an early boss of mine who was emotional, and I wanted to please her very much. Of course, I was a young person. I was eager. So if there was a problem, I would take care of it, and I would go to her and tell her I had taken care of the problem. But she didn't like that because she didn't really believe me. 
She didn't have confidence. I learned that if I went to her, I could take care of it. But if I went to her and I said, there's a terrible problem. Okay. I'm not sure what to do. Will you help me? Then she would be more confident. She would relax because she needed to have her hands in it. You know, she needed to be upset first. Yeah. And then, you know, to calm herself. So if I went to her and said, it's terrible, please help me then she would be calm to show me what to do. Interesting, because it feels like she was really emotional, as you said, and you came with her language, so then she would connect with you and she could feel better. Once you came and you figured it out, she stayed with her emotion and she didn't know what to do with them. So actually, in this process, she needed you to help her deal with her emotions and find the right solution, right? Exactly to your earlier point. You have to figure out for each person I want, before we wrap up, to ask you another question that I had in mind before. How strongly do you believe that self-care for leaders is a necessary part of any leadership? Self-care? Yeah. How do you see it? So I believe in it very much, but I believe the term or the beliefs about it have become a little trivial and maybe even corrupted. Like, it is a very nice thing in a tense time period to bring in somebody to give massages, you know, to people who are working. That's very lovely. And it is very good for a person to get a massage. But that's not enough self-care if what you need is time and rest and health and being able to think quietly and all those things. So again, it's different for everybody, but also A surface veneer, whatever is popular in the culture, is not enough. There's a sense of true health that people need to have to think their best and to do their best. There is also really a need to not be under threat. Mm -hmm. And in our capitalist society, most business people feel a little under threat a lot of the time. And it is very hard to get to real health that way. So part of self-care is actually figuring out how to minimize or reduce the amount of threat you take in in the course of a day. Mm -hmm. And that's tough. That's really about self-awareness, self-regulation. Mindfulness is one approach. There are many, many approaches but being aware of yourself and learning how to create safe space for yourself, that's really crucial. So it's amazing. You know, it all connects for me. Also the communication aspect and the, the self-care, because at the end of the day, you say there's the fake harmony that everything is okay, but we don't dare to speak with each other. And yes. there's the self, safe, self-care. And this is also fake because it's only the maneuvers that we see uh, on the surface. But at the end of the day, being mindful is the ability really to listen to ourselves, to our needs, to the space, to create our own space. There's a saying goes to be our own mothers, to accept ourselves, to, to nourish ourselves and not accept anybody else to do it for us, even not our boss. Because if we won't take care of ourselves, we won't be able to put boundaries and we won't be able to take care of others, right? So it starts within ourselves. The ability to go deeper beyond what is expected 
and from this place to navigate our jobs, our day-to-day, right. our relationships. And this, this is what is worth maximum effort. Mm, that's right. Because when we are okay and strong and not brittle and fragile and just surface, when we are really okay, other people can be okay with us. That's we right. create more space around us. And then that's, you know, there's a flow in that coming back to the earlier conversation. There's a joy in that knowing that you provided that for somebody. Oh, my God, that's a tremendous boost. Amazing. So we close the circle, right? We start with the flow and we came back to flow. In order to have flow, we need to have our presence, our anchor, our ease. And from this place, we can really... Invest you now. You understand minimum effort, but gain maximum results because we're having more value and impact on ourselves and others. Yes, it was a great joy speaking with you. So I see time's flying. We need to wrap up. So before we wrap up, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you don't want to say? I loved the conversation. I'm very happy. The only thing I would say is if it's helpful to members of your audience, on my website there is a free ebook. Mm-hmm. about the interpersonal aspects of managing conflict. And there's just, I don't know, 12 years, maybe 15 years, I don't know, of writing about all kinds of aspects of organization and communication at work and how you make workplaces decent places so that people can really give their best and also as much as possible feel their best. Amazing. So where can they find you? Can you say the website or the LinkedIn? It's LizKislik.com, L-I-Z-K-I-S-L-I-K. Great. And they can also find me on LinkedIn, of course, you know, all of that. Great. So we also put it on the social media. Liz, thank you very much. It was really a joyful conversation and inspiring. I loved it, Karen. Thank you. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. You're invited to subscribe to our podcast in order to know when we upload a new episode and follow us on social media. Thank you for listening. Until next time, take care and bye-bye.